Hello, Adulting Well listeners. This is Pepper, a.k.a. Joshua, a.k.a. Pepper, here to tell you about Anchor. So we used to host our podcast on another service, and we had this show for maybe three or four years at this point. And we got some metrics and things, but we didn't have a lot to do with them. And we recently switched over to Anchor. And what's amazing about it is it has all the metrics for the show. So you can see, you know, how many downloads you get and things like that. But it it also lets you engage with the audience uh, in ways that our old service couldn't. So, for instance, we can have polls. We can ask listeners to uh, leave us messages and questions and things like that. And we can uh, put them on the air super easily and answer those questions. Just uh, that's just one example. But there are just a lot of different ways that we can um, engage with you now that we're using Anchor. So uh, this is our first ad, and it's for this service that we're using to provide this podcast to you. And I think it's uh, actually a really, really good service. Um, And if you have a podcast, I recommend it. You can download the Anchor app or go to Anchor FM to get started. Uh, Thanks for uh, pausing with me for a second. Now back to the episode. Hello and welcome to the Adulting Well Podcast. I am your host, Joshua Doan, and I am joined as always by... Kevin McCracken, your co-host. And tonight I am really excited. It is our first show, and we have an amazing guest. Tracy Helton Mitchell has dedicated her life to the care and treatment of heroin addicts and users, more appropriately. Tracy Tracy entered school through an ex-offenders program where she earned a Bachelor's of Business Administration and Master's of Public Administration. In addition, she's a certified addiction specialist and supervisor. She was featured in the movie Black Tar Heroin, The Dark End of the Street. She has also been featured on, by CNN, Anderson Cooper, Vice, NPR's Fresh Air, The Huffington Post, and The New York Times. She's the author of The Big Fix, Hope After Heroin. Tracy's also a very old friend in full disclosure, and I am super excited to have her here. I know that she has been clean a very long time. And so I'd like to kind of start with that if we can. Just talk a little bit about your experience as a, especially as a woman uh coming off the street getting and staying clean because I know you used a lot of different methods over the years to sort of maintain your recovery. Sure. Um so I am happy to be here. Uh it's interesting as time goes by I'm less known for being in HPS Black Tar Heroin the Dark into the Street. Um, but that's sort of like where most people from a certain era know me from. So now it's like I'm known as an author of a whole nother book or people know me from my activism. So I was using here, well, first I was using in Cincinnati, Ohio, uh, back in the, the dinosaur age of junkies when, um, we would have the same syringe. And I remember at one point I had the same syringe for like a year and you had to worry about it breaking off in someone's arm or their hand. Um, I remember. Why she, is that? Were they just hard to get? You just couldn't get them. Mm. And, and there's parts of the United States you still can't get them. So mm. even in California, even where it's, it's legal to sell syringes, the pharmacists can choose at their discretion not to sell them. So there's w- large swaths in the United States where you can't get clean syringes, including parts of California. So, uh, so I was using, and then I came out here on first spring break in 1992 and I just never left because I got strung out and um and in that period of time I went through a lot of different you know I tried switching drugs I was on methadone a few times methadone helped me the the first time it helped me quit heroin but then I had switched to other drugs um but really there was no treatment available then um when the treatment that was you know available for the most part was attack therapy so that we've gotten rid of that for the most part but i think a lot of people forget when that was like the the modality of treatment that people were most able to access what is that where well they had they would yell at you they would yell at you and tell you what a horrible person you were and how you're a lying piece of shit and all kinds of stuff you would sit in the they called it the gallery um they would make you sit uh on a chair you know, for hours and hours at a time reflecting on whatever. I mean, it was... It so was, it didn't work? Uh, it worked for some people. There's hmm. still, you know, Delancey Street is not that far from that um, from that model. They, you know, it was eventually... It was started from a, a program called Synanon, was the, the big one that people were familiar with. Um, back when I was a teenager, they had what were called the care units where you would 
send your minor child and they would lock them up for years at a time and and you were supposed to call the police when they came home. So sort of compassionate treatment is a fairly new concept for a lot of people. Um, So I didn't know how to get into any kind of treatment. I didn't know anyone who had gotten clean um, because they wouldn't hang around with me, obviously, uh, if they had any common sense. But uh, then I went, I had remembered... Um, they had offered me to go to program in 1996. I had refused because I didn't want to waste anybody's time. Um, and I said, well, maybe if I go back to jail, I'll be able to go to treatment. So I went to a treatment facility that was for ex-offenders. Um, it was such a terrible treatment facility. It was actually closed because they said the people were getting worse there. But the, the thing that had helped me was being exposed to 12-step in the jail and then going to 12-step when I was in that treatment facility and then also I had started going to an outpatient treatment program for women um, that's since closed called the SAGE Project. So they said, um, you know, women who had been, at the time it was just women, and women who had been sexually abused needed a special place to go to talk about trauma issues. And that had to be in cooperation with their recovery from substance abuse. And that was sort of a, a unique idea at the time because, you know, you were told if you had mental health issues, we'll get sober and then we'll work on your mental health issues. And if you had mental health issues, you were told, um, we'll fix your mental health issues, but we can't take you in here and assess you if you have substance abuse mm-hmm. issues. And they said, well, we'll work uh, with what we have. So um, I ended up volunteering there uh, and I, you know, I ended up working there. I ended up running the program years later. But it was really um, having that women's support group on Wednesday night as a place to go. Um, out of the treatment facility. And then I ended up moving into the Salvation Army Bridgeway, which was a sober living place. So when I say I was in sober living for four years, it's just like unbelievable to some people. Um, but they used to let you stay. I mean, you could stay as long as you, as long as you wanted to. And so it was in the, it was in the Tenderloin and I had my own room. So it was a hotel that was built, you know, built out and you had your own room, and then I shared a bathroom with a guy that I had been in treatment with, so that was pretty cool. Um, we because he worked two jobs, so he was never there. So it was, you know, it was a good time to like go to meetings and go and try to get myself together. I had a little job and stuff like that, and I just built on there. They had recommended that I go to therapy. I went to a specialized kind of therapy for tra- trauma survivors called EMDR therapy, where the theory behind that is that trauma gets stuck in your brain like a kidney stone and you do these different techniques to tr- as you're talking about your traumatic incident to try to help reprocess that. And that really helped me quite a bit, um, you know, sort of unravel the different things. And then I started going back to school. So that was sort of like my early recovery combo. And then eventually I would add acupuncture and then I would take out acupuncture. I would go to yoga and then I would take out yoga. I would walk a lot. I would then I wouldn't have time to do that. And I would just try, I think I would just mix things up over time. And I still try to do that, try to mix things up um, as sort of like my individualized program of recovery. Wow. Well, the other, the other thing that, that I noticed about you right away is your openness to talk to pretty much anybody, both about your experience and your honesty about it, like you just were with us, but also your experience in recovery. And I think the book really reflects that. And I know the book's a few years old now, but it really reflects uh, a a great picture of what's happened to you over the years since that time you finally decided, this is it. I'm getting clean. I'm going to do whatever it takes. Um, You know, and I have, uh, in terms of my experience over almost 20 years as well, it's been, I've tried pretty much everything I can to both you know, keep my life interesting and to, uh, to stay, to stay clean. And so I, I think one of the things that's inspired me the most, uh, about Tracy and your story is just that, that openness to talk about what happened. And it really, in my opinion, helps people sort of open up, you know, and like say, okay, well that happened to me too. If she can talk about it, I can talk about it. So I think in, you know, in early recovery, I would sit in these groups and I would just notice a lot of the people were full of shit and i would think who are you who are you lying for like why are you why are you lying like they would talk about you know i sold all these drugs or i had all this money and i would sit there and think but i i was sleeping outside and i used to see you pass by me with your shopping cart so like what are you what are you talking about like who are you trying to impress and then i realized really early on like my ego couldn't be part of that and i started thinking like you know, if there's, they, they said in this meeting, which it's not even true, so don't believe the statistics. They said in the, in, of the 80 of you, 
uh, only two of you are going to make it, which absolutely is not true, and they never should say shit like that. But I started thinking, well, that's cold for 79 of you all, because I, I want that spot. Like, I want to, to be honest. I want to, like, get all this stuff out of me. I'm never going to see any of these people again, so I might as well talk about what's going on with me, and that's just sort of set the precedent. I think people worry so much about how they're perceived by other people, and it's like, I don't want to worry about that. Like, I don't want to be a hooker again. I don't want to be degrading myself, you know, begging for a $5 bag of dope. Like, if I talk about it, then maybe it won't, I won't go back to that. Like, they say, um, you know, play the whole tape and not the highlight reel. Like, for me, I have to go through all the different things. And I think it's, if you put that in front of you, you don't, you don't easily forget that. I mean, I totally remember what it was like, you know, searching for veins in my feed and, and crying and saying, oh, why am I doing this myself? And and then just, you know, just the absolute demoralization of having to depend on your hustle, like, all day, every day, all night. There's no break in, in anything. And then it would rain, and I'd be sitting in the doorway. My shoes would be wet. There's no place for me to go. Like, people kicked me out of their place in the middle of the night, even though I paid the guest fee. And I'd just be sitting there crying, like, this is my life. And, and two hours later, I'm off hustling again. Like, even though I said I wanted to change. And I think that... That's sort of a common experience no matter what your drug of choice is or, you know, whatever your, your, however the trajectory of your addiction is, it's those moments where you think to yourself, like, I just cannot live like this anymore. I just don't want to live like this anymore. And that's a lot of what I encapsulate in my writing. And that's a lot of what I try to encapsulate in telling stories is I try to tell a visual story of of the places that we don't want to go back to again. Yeah. Well, I also think that, um, What's interesting and I'd like to hear more about is there there at some point in your in your both your your life and recovery and your career, you have this pivot point where because I come from kind of the same place. I come from a you know, I was in Walden House when it was still a program. Specifically it was actually they still used a lot of the attack therapy model you mentioned earlier. It was a therapeutic community. We'd sit sit in groups and yell at each other, you know. Somewhere along the way and I think this happens for a lot of people with long-term, you know, recovery, you, you kind of come to this point where you need to be a little more middle ground about things. Your, the, your transformation that was even more so dramatic coming from that background of 12 step and, and recovery programs and that you threw yourself like head first into what is now, you know, a global movement of harm reduction. And you were really early on buying into the ideas of harm reduction and using it, um, to make people's life better, not necessarily staying clean, you know, but making their lives, uh, their quality of lives much better and keeping them from doing the things that would send them back to prison, mental institutions, et cetera. I'd kind of like to hear, um, you know, you know, for everybody a little more about that because it's such an important part of your story and the things that you put out. Cause you know, the bio in terms of caring and treatment of heroin addicts is sort of one thing, but you've really dedicated your life to improving the lives of heroin users. I, I think users, people who people, we like to use the term people who use drugs. Uh, I think there was a huge paradigm shift for me. I was totally 12 step abstinence. Nothing else could penetrate my psyche for a while and I remember even like doing early on doing counseling with people and like they would talk about their, you know, being on methadone and stuff like that. Oh, that's not clean. And like I, and everything was kind of based around things I had heard in the rooms and my opinions. And so what really changed my mind is first was uh, in 1998, 1999, San Francisco had, it's almost, I mean, when you think about the numbers in comparison, like we had around a little less than 200 people die of overdoses, which was considered an epidemic here, and it was all down the West Coast. And so people I knew had died then, and they were looking for people who had used drugs to represent um, an overdose prevention campaign and to go out and work with people around overdose prevention. And I said, well, even if I don't necessarily agree with everything, I definitely agree that we need to save lives. And so that was something I was a part of. I've been working with on overdose prevention um, since, you know, I went to this heroin conference in, in January of 2000. So I've been working in harm reduction um, for 18 years now in various states. But then at the same time, I had a friend and he was on, Jake from the movie Black Tar Heroin, he was on methadone. And so I had seen him, we used to get high together. I had seen him in his addiction. I had seen the different things that he went through 
you know, with health problems, with mental health problems. And he was on methadone. He was doing so well. And he used to go to these 12-step meetings and people used to tell him he should get off methadone. And it's like, why would you tell him that? That's the best he'd ever did in his whole life. And I talked to him and I, I started talking to him about it. You know, he was working. He was he was volunteering, doing volunteer work. He was going to school. He was volunteering at Gilman. He had a girlfriend. He had a stable place to live. He was doing so well. And he was experiencing so much pressure in the rooms from people who really didn't know him. Because if they would have known him, they wouldn't have said those kind of things to him. I mean, he, they knew him, but it's more like that... Um, environment where people give their five seconds of advice in the rooms as opposed to really getting sort of in-depth with people Hmm. and so he overdosed and died like I saw him right when he first overdosed and I had talked to him about trying to get back on the methadone clinic and he you know he people from 12-step brought the police and kicked in the door and he was dead and I was thinking to myself him drinking methadone didn't impact anybody else. Why did they care so much about it? And then I had to point the finger at myself and say, but aren't you that same person? Aren't you that same judgmental person? It's like if something is improving the quality of somebody's life, and if you believe that addiction is a chronic medical condition, not even if you believe it's a disease, if you believe it's a chronic medical condition, some people require medications as part of their recovery. Yeah, so why do I care? So why do I care? Like why do why do I find it necessary to go out of my way to point things out to people? And I think that's that's the um, the problem. And I and I and I'll say just in twelve step in general is that you get so caught up in the dogma of it, you forget the person that you're saying some of this stuff to, and and we lose sort of that connection. So so I you know I really became dedicated to to harm reduction because I feel like people can't get clean if they're dead. Um, people can't, you know, I want those people in my, I want those people in my life. Uh, I want people. Is it a bridge to total sobriety for some people? Do you think they, they, or do they just find a way that works for them and and that's it? So if I wouldn't have gone on methadone in 1992, I don't, I don't believe I'd be alive today. Mm -hmm. So if I wouldn't have gotten Narcan when I got Narcan by the paramedics, I wouldn't be alive today. Like, so, so for some people it is, but I don't know that that has to be the end result for some people. I, I feel like sobriety is not for everybody. And I can say, you know, with 20 years in sobriety, it's fucking hard. You know, I, some of the mental health yeah. shit I've had to deal with, having panic attacks mm-hmm. and, um, you know, being depressed and wanting to jump in front of the bar train and stuff like that. So I, I don't, I wouldn't, I wouldn't recommend some, you know, sobriety for everybody. I, I often tell people, cause you know, you, in the rooms, you hear a lot of suicide stories, right? Or wanting to commit suicide mm-hmm. or almost committing suicide yeah. or tries. And I was, I've never been suicidal until... I got sober. <laughs> like, that's the only time those thoughts had ever entered my mind, ever. Well, yeah, because you start feeling stuff. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, if, and Kevin can probably uh, probably remembers this, too. If you roll back 20 years, you were they told people to get off psych meds in the rooms. Oh, yeah. Mm. I mean, I had a sponsee. She was schizophrenic. She was on psych meds. People were telling her to get off psych meds. It's changed quite a bit, the, especially with around mental health. It's changed quite a bit where people have loosened up quite a bit. But it, there used to be a hardcore community of people that used to say, if you're on anything, yeah. you're not supposed to take anything. Yeah. Yet they're standing outside drinking coffee and chain smoking, but you're not you're not supposed to be you're not supposed <laughs> yeah, to be on anything. That always bothered me, but I never bring it up because I feel like that's a slippery slope. Like it, like I, I could be just making an excuse at that point or something. Well, that's what people would like you to believe. I mean, right. you know, anything that you put in your body that alters your mind or mood is mind altering substance. You know, coffee and cigarettes have been excused. Primarily because the founders of AA were coffee and cigarette addicts. You know what I mean? It's like, so it's a little, it's a little difficult. But I think you, you mentioned one thing um, a minute ago, um, which is Narcan. And I know that this is a huge subject for you and a really, really big part of your, uh, your dedication to helping people that still use heroin um, live. Not just, not just heroin anymore. So fentanyl well, yeah. is in all the U.S. drug supply right. anymore. It's in the cocaine. It's in the press pills. It's in the amphetamines. Everyone who uses drugs or has someone in their life that uses drugs needs to have naloxone. And not only have Narcan... And not only have it, you need to have a plan around it. So, can we, can we back up a little bit? I'm not sure what that is. Sure. So, fentanyl is a synthetic opioid mm-hmm. that is very fast acting and very, very potent. And so, what happens is it floods the system. 
and you quickly have these incidences where you have so much of it on board, you quick you can overdose and die. Hmm. So Narcan is uh, also known. The generic term for it is naloxone. If you think of the drugs flowing through your brain, the opioids flowing through your brain like a river, it's a dam temporarily. So for 45 minutes to an hour, it'll block the effects in most cases. I mean, it'll block the effects, but some people can't be saved because they just have too many things going on uh, of opioids in your system. And then hopefully your system is going to recover in that time or you're getting to the hospital or whatever so the person can continue to live. So we started... San Francisco was the first city-sponsored naloxone program in the United States. Other people had been giving away naloxone for a long time. In San Francisco, we've been giving away naloxone since 2003. So around 2015, 2016, we, there was this huge opioid crisis that started to be noticed. So it was going on before then, but you, people really started to notice. It really got a lot of media coverage. You know, it was going on before then. But the reason why is because the fentanyl in the drug supply... So the the whoever the traffickers are, are discovering, they can put this cheaper opioid in, specifically heroin, and now they're putting it in cocaine. They're putting it in methamphetamine. They're putting it in everything to make more to make more money. The problem is people. It, oh, it it you can the amount that you use that can cause someone to die is just, the margin is so small. It's killing people. It's killing people. Um, so they say in a 10 year period, they're expecting a half a million deaths from this, from fentanyl and the drug supply. And so the sort of un thing that they weren't really expecting, uh, people who use drugs is now it's in the, it's in the cocaine. Now it's, I mean, if, can you imagine if you're going out to, you know, rail a few lines in the bar on the weekend and you get, you're trying to do an upper and you get this downer. And so they're finding people, you know, that were just using cocaine that are dying. And and then here in San Francisco, we had three people die. They were smoking meth. They were Mm -hmm. using, or maybe they were, I don't know if they were, no, maybe they weren't smoking it. They were using meth for sure. And one of them, I believe, had naloxone on him. I'd have to read the report again. But either way, they died. So um, in honor of our title of our podcast, we talk about adulting. So you have three children. Oh. Yes. And so there's a couple things that I'd like to kind of pivot off of. One, I mean, you're a relatively public figure. Um, you know, you speak at a lot of events. You you did some book promotion when the book came out. Uh, obviously, your past is not something you're going to be able to hide from your children. And I think it's it'd be good for people to hear kind of how you temper your your past life um, with your current life and talk to your kids about it, especially the older one. So I don't. Uh, hide anything for my kids within their developmental level. So my children all know that I've been to jail and they all know that I had a drug problem because I want them, when the time comes and someone tries to give them weed or alcohol, I want them to have information from me and not be getting it from their little friends, especially with our, you know, the history of addiction that I've had. So they ride the BART, they see people who are intoxicated on the BART. So I use that as like a, a learning experience, but I personally feel like it's better to tell them and be upfront about it. Like when you're at a party or a function and people are drinking beer, I explain to them, mommy doesn't drink beer. Mommy doesn't, that's not something that I do. Like we've, I've taken them to places where I used to sleep outside. So they have compassion for other people that are homeless. My, I heard, I heard my son tell someone, you know, my mommy was in jail before, but, and she used to do drugs and now she doesn't. And, and so that was something that, I was really proud of my, you know, I was proud of my son because he's proud, he's proud of me and he's nine years old. So I think that it's, it's just better to be upfront with people, but I think it's, it depends on their, it depends on who it, you know, their developmental level. And also, I mean, we live in a city where you have to kind of do a lot of explaining to children anyway, when you walk around, like they see things I'd rather, you know, explain it to them. Um, at Christmas time, I think we gave, uh, snacks out, um, you know, we're on the train. I explained to them, you know, give that give that person your snack. They need it more than you. Like, I want them to be grateful for the things that we have. Uh, and and I think, you know, when you go, especially like with me, like they were on, they've been on TV with me to try to humanize people who use drugs, you know, mostly in the background or whatever. But I just want them, I want them to, to be uh, proud of the things that I've done, not ashamed of the places I've been. Sure. That's, that's amazing. I I think that like having that perspective as a child is just, I mean, my mom was an active alcoholic when I was young and 
there was no there was no you, you know, telling me like here's what's going on. This is what you know. And then when she got sober, I also didn't have that. I wasn't proud of her until I was an adult because I didn't understand what she went through. You know. Yeah, I, there was a, a a young man. He he came here from the UK. He was doing a documentary about opioid users and his mom had been an opioid user most of his life and she had just tapered off of methadone i think he was 19 and it was interesting to hear my my daughter who's 10 having a conversation with him about both their mothers being opioid users and i was sitting there, it was like an otherworldly kind of experience like how they were you know she was comforting him about you know your mom really loves you and you know she she may have had this experience of being sick like uh, but now she's be- you know now she's better and i was and i was thinking you know what a gift to to be able to explain these things to my to my child in such a way that then they can translate that information to somebody else and then we were at their softball picnic uh and one of the girls i guess Katie had talked my daughter Katie had talked to her about my experience and one of the girls was talking about there's a girl at my school and her, her mom had died of a heroin overdose. And I was wondering how I could be supportive of her. And I was like, I I kind of, ner- you know, got nervous for a minute because, because, you know, I'm having this 13 year old ask me questions, but then I was like, well, yeah, I can be open. I can answer her questions to the best of my ability and how cool that my daughter like really, you know, put this person in, in my, you know, in my radar screen and really thought, oh, my mom is a person you can talk to to help you. I mean, I think it's amazing that your kids are being raised that way. Your kids are, are beautiful and amazing as well. I mean, they're just like, you know, and having that experience, I think, as a parent um, and having your kids never know you in your active use is amazing as well. I mean, my kids don't know at all what I was like when I was using in terms of how I am today. And um, um, one of the interesting things, I think, the tie-in, too, is that you actually have your own kind of private distribution of naloxone from your house, right? You, you yes. get it out to people. Um, so the kids obviously see that. Do they help with any of the packaging or anything? They, ha- I mean, they have helped a little bit. I mean, I do more, um, I have some volunteers I work with more, uh, my, because my system of organization is so terrible that I try to depend <laughs> on other people. Like it's, it's really not cool at all how terrible my system of organization is, but I have asked them to help me. Um, you know, they just know them as medical supplies, yeah. and uh, and I think they they see the people on the street that are suffering, and they have compassion for them, and that's really the best I can hope for is me me explaining to them when not to approach people and when not to talk. You know, trying to give them some kind of sense of like when to leave people alone, and like you know, and also have them you know understand about you know race and poverty and um, you know, all the different, the war on drugs and different kinds of things about me going to jail for a $20 bag of drugs and how that's impacted. I'm a convicted felon, um, you know, trying to explain to them like me not having civil rights when I go to certain States, um, still, uh, so they, they kind of understand it, you know, they have a broader perspective, but, but, you know, I, I've always tried to go kind of with their developmental level as opposed to like, you know, putting the burden on them, things they don't necessarily Mm -hmm. understand. Yeah, that makes sense. So um, tell us about some interesting parenting moments or awkward moments. You know, I, at, I know at the PTA meeting. Yeah, <laughs> I know for me, there are certain times now even I mean, you know, I, I've been relatively successful. I'm not, you know, I'm, I'm not definitely not the guy I was. But there's certain times where I still feel like <gasps> when I'm around certain people or in certain social situations or, you know, like you were saying, when the girl was asking you for help, you get a little nervous. Um kind of even doing the things I've done, a lot of public speaking, there's just certain times where it's just like the awkward moment. Luckily, I didn't marry somebody that isn't experienced with this stuff, but I know that like there's, you know, there's relationships that we have where we're involved with somebody that would we would consider kind of, you know, a, a square or a normie, right? So I think, I mean, I have a certain amount of imposter syndrome where I'm like, how did I end up with this life? Uh, <laughs> and that's, you know, that's kind of difficult, you know, because sometimes it's, I would say it sucks because sometimes when I'm at, you know, certain 12 step meetings, I'm like, I just don't understand these people because my bottom was so low. And I, and then I'm, I really struggle for, uh, 
for patients and to not be judgmental and to like let that shit go. But you know, I mean, why? Because their stories were so mellow, or it, it's just I just don't. You know, my bottom was just so like I was eating out of dumpsters and living with a mm-hmm. shopping cart and like living outside for for years, and and that was like my experience. And some people, their experience, I mean, but I think everybody's experience is valid, but I think sometimes I just get myself in this like judgmental thing where I just kind of don't understand other people's perspective. But that's really, I mean, to a certain extent, that's your, that's your alcoholism, like making you different from everybody else where, Mm -hmm. where everybody's just kind of the same. I mean, but how rad is it that you can go to some place where everybody's trying to get help? But I think for me, what's super awkward is people expect me to be a friendly person and I'm not actually very friendly. And so I go places cause I'm on TV and stuff. Because you do like good things with your life. You should be, you're like a, a night. You they think you're just going to be super nice. And fr- well, it's not that I'm not nice. I'm just not friendly. Right, so right. like people will approach me and I'm out someplace and I don't have like, I'm not, first of all, I have resting bitch face. And I'm just not, a fr- I'm just not a friendly person. <laughs> and so I don't, you know, I'll go out to these places and people want to tell me these hyper personal stories about themselves. Like I always, if any social party I go to, I end up in the corner with someone who's telling me about someone with their drug problems and their family. And then they expect me to be friendly. And it's like, Oh, I'm not a friendly person, especially I can't be on all the time. And like you go out and, uh, and sometimes I, like I'll cocoon in my house sometimes for days at a time and not want to deal with people. Cause I'm just not, I'm just not, a, I'm very introverted unless, I mean, I'm tur- it's, I think we all have that to a certain extent as a, a person, you know, you, you know how to turn it on when it's necessary, then you, but then you shut down and you're sort of introverted. Like, I'm just not, I'm just not necessarily a friendly person. And like, I've had like, I recently I went out and like this person really expected like this super friendly like hey and they were like kind of pissed they're like I know who you are it's like yay but I'm here to do something else. you know I'm here to like watch the fear show <laughs> and you're drunk you know what I mean it's like this is not really uh, a time where I feel like being you know super friendly and like discussing whatever it is that you want to discuss right. with me we also need it to be about us right like like everything <laughs> The conversation needs to be about us. Oh, I do. Yeah, yeah. for sure. <laughs> yeah, but I, but I mean, there's also the fact that, like, I, and I think that's, you know, everyone has their own level of comfort with people who are drinking and, like, people who are using drugs. I'm actually more comfortable around people who are high on drugs than I am when people who are drinking. Because I'm mm. not going to use drugs anymore, but sometimes alcohol looks appealing. And, like, the behavior changes, like, with alcohol just remind me too much of my own personal shit. The like, drunks are the worst. I... I don't know if drunks are the worst, but they're scary to me to a certain extent because yeah. you never know exactly what they're going to do. It's that be it's that little kid growing up with the alcoholic parent who never knows what my dad's going to do. Like, is he going to be like the great guy today, or is he going to be the person who wants to, you know wants to drive me to the ice capades drunk and I'm like arguing with my mom and shit like that? Like, you don't know who it is. And so when I get around people in social situations and they're drinking, sometimes I just shut down. Like, I don't even know who to. Who, who or how to interact with them. Uh, and, and that's something that's taken me years and years to really come, come like to understand about myself is that I shut down in those kind of situations. Like I just can't, I can't pull it together necessarily. I remember the first time being at a bar with friends after I quit drinking and, uh, it was just, it was the, the, first of all, they were all obnoxious really fast, and they would get louder and louder. And I just never noticed before because I was always drunk. And then with the and just the realizing just how lame bars are, like when you're not drunk, it's it's just... yeah, they they look a lot worse too. You're like last time I was here, this was awesome. It yeah. was like really well decorated, and there was cool people here. And you're like, this is so disappointing. You know when the lights go on yeah. at the end of the night, yeah. Yeah. it's like it's like that all the time. I think yeah. when you're not drinking, I, yes. I would agree. Well, there's nothing to do there too. <laughs> do you know what I mean? There's yeah. like there's not there's yeah. nothing to do there too. Like I remember people saying, "Oh, let's go to these shows. Let's go to these punk rock shows or hardcore shows at the bar." And I was like, "But they're in between. There's like nothing to do. Everybody's drinking and people spilling beer on me and stuff like that. And they they don't hold my beer. It's like ugh. But I mean, I've you know I've it got a thicker skin since then. I think parties are a little different too, though, because you get stuck. There's always like the one drunk person who really wants to talk to me. And then I get a lot of people who cry and stuff like that, you know, cause I was a crier. I was a big, like emotional crier when I'd have a few drinks me, I try to stab my friends. It was kind of one or the other. I'm crying in the bathroom. or trying to stab my friends if I'm drinking. 
And so I always seem to end up with the, the people who cry. And, and you know how it reminds you so much of yourself? It's kind of like, yeah, yeah, yeah. ooh. So. Yeah, it's rough. It's, it is rough. I went, I went to my high school reunion this weekend. Did you? Yeah. That was brave. Well, you know, I mean, I'm, I'm right down the street, so it's kind of, you know, can't really say no either. But uh, it was fun. I, I saw some people that I really actually was happy I connected with. and But the, the I, I notice as people get older, those that aren't alcoholics, like the drinking mellows out too. Like at, at this point, which is 30-year reunion, people weren't drinking as hardcore as they once were, the ones that don't drink all the time. And I was like, oh, this is much easier to deal with. That's why my wife and I worked, because I quit drinking right when she like got to an age when a normal person just kind of slows, slows down. down yeah. you know? But I definitely, I've had that party syndrome. When people find out like who you are, and I say that in quotation marks, like, oh yeah, this person's been sober a long time, or they've been, you know, they used to be a, an addict. They want to to have like this heart to heart with you about a family member or yes. their or their struggles with weed or whatever, and I'm like, look, I, I find myself like looking at my phone to see what time it is, and and I'm actually an extrovert, you know, I'll yeah. talk to almost anybody, but it feels like sometimes when that subject matter is broached and someone wants to confide in me and I don't know them well. It's really uncomfortable. Are you ever the arbiter of like who's an alcoholic and who isn't? Like people oh. come up to me oh, all the time, you. like, so I had this is how much I drink and this, and I'm not sure. And I'm like, I don't think so. I don't know. Yeah, I well, I answer a lot of people's questions online about. I mean, that's a lot of what I do is like helping people with ever get off drugs or whatever. But it was very, it's been very strange because I grew up in a very small community in Westchester, Ohio. And a lot of these people have contacted me over the years. I don't know if it's because they've seen me on TV. I mean, some of them, obviously, they have, they're very nice. They've had problems in their family, family with drugs. And some people, I don't even know why they've contacted me. And it's interesting because a lot of them forget that they used to tease the fucking shit out of me. And then I've thought, you know, yeah, I could really just be an, a, a total <laughs> dick right now. Like, and and then I pulled out my seventh grade yearbook, and kids had written all kinds of like cruel shit about me. <laughs> oh, no. And then they were like, "Do you want to go to our our reunion?" I was like, "Fuck no!" You know, no, I don't want to go. <laughs> but then, but then the other side of me is like, you know, I just want to try to help help people or whatever and yeah. forgiveness and all that. But I'm like, don't you remember calling me Orca the Killer Whale and like saying shit about my glasses and like, you're the reason I started using drugs in the first place. But then it's like, it's actually not true. But the the one period of time that in particular, the fir- I was diagnosed as having depression at the school actually when I was 12 years old. And that's like the year that they wrote like shitty things about me in the yearbook. And it's interesting because I had got some help, some counseling. And the next year, some kids had wrote, oh, you've changed so much. You're so nice or whatever. And then I, but I don't remember any of that. You know, I don't remember any of that kind of but stuff. But that's an interesting thing, right? Like your outlook changed and then their outlook changed or like your attitude changed and their attitude changed. I was thinking about this. There's this dude <clears throat> that I ran into recently and I was like, I don't like this guy. I never liked this guy. And I realized like I probably have been giving this guy like bad looks since day one. Like I probably have the worst attitude around him. Like how much of this is just me kind of not being open and friendly to him. You know? So I think on the topic of adulting though, at a certain point you'd have to decide how much of the past you want to let go. Mm-hmm. So even if you're not going to forgive people, how much of the past do you want to sit and just wallow in and like ruminate about and how much of it do you just want to let go? And I think part of being free as an adult is saying, I just don't give a fuck anymore. Mm-hmm. I just don't feel like worrying about this stuff anymore. I just want to let it go. Like, if I put on that extra 10 pounds, if I do whatever, it's like I want to be healthy, but it's like there's just certain things I just can't worry about stuff anymore. I can't carry around this bag of resentments for the rest of my life. Uh, you know, I had an interesting in- incident recently with my family, and my family likes to drink, and God bless them. They can drink and have homes and stuff, and I drink and I'm looking for crack. So, you know, they, and normally I would go and they'd be drinking and I'd be slamming shit. You know what I mean? Like, make sure everybody's miserable. Everyone has to be miserable if I'm miserable (laughs) too. Of course. But then this last time when I was there, I just chose to recuse myself and not make anybody miserable. You can have your good time and I will just watch movies and do whatever it is you're going to do. And I realized how much growth that is for me because I really, really, really... There's pictures of me at my sister's wedding, you know, frowning, like being miserable. Like, I want everybody around me to fucking suck, you know, if I'm not feeling good about myself. And it's like, I don't have to act like that anymore. I can just, you know, just do my own thing and everybody else do their own thing. Oh, it's so powerful. Yeah, Yeah. that is good. I mean, I definitely have suffered over the years from the, don't you see how sad I am? 
(laughs) (laughs) I'm making sure if you don't, I'm going to let you know in really, really bad ways. I mean, but isn't it so passive aggressive? Oh, God, it's awful. Oh, yeah. I mean, we're, we just don't want, we want everybody to know what we're thinking and feeling, but we don't want to tell them. Like, or we just want them to feel, I just want you to feel like shit because I feel like shit. And it's like, you know what, if they can drink and do whatever, who fucking cares? But, but I just want to, but I can't drink, so I want to make everybody else have a bad, I mean, and that's been my go-to for a long time, long, long time, you know, slamming doors and the heavy size, you know, just make sure everybody knows. (laughs) Heavy sighs are one of my favorites. I love heavy sighs. My wife calls me out on that. Why did you just sigh? I'm like, and I'm thinking to myself, I got the response in my head that I want to give. But then the real thing is, is just really honestly, because I'm feeling bad for myself and I want everybody else to feel bad for me too. <laughs> yes, feeling bad for myself. That's like, yes. I mean, and that's the reasons why people continue to drink and use. Is oh, like, yeah. Especially when the shame train comes into play. Like, you know, when pe- I, it's weird when you, I'm not weird, but it, the process when you see people relapse, you know, you should think you could be accepted back and people care about you or whatever, but the sh- the shame... And the mm-hmm. guilt and then carrying that around with you. And it's like shame and guilt in that situation are such useless emotions because they're really keeping you from what you need, which is to get help. But you just you just feel so, so terrible. And then the drugs just drag you down even more. So I just tell people in those kind of situations, if you relapse, you know, just whatever it is you got to do, if you feel ashamed, it's not going to help you. You have to start from where you're at. In any kind of situation, no matter what's happened to you at life, like, you have to be present. You have to start where you're at and go forward from there. Like, if I if I sat, if I I thought about the things, you know, I've had someone try to murder me. I've been, you know, I've been held hostage. I've had my nose broken seven times. I've had my teeth chipped. I've been raped. I've I had all these things happen to me. If, if I just sat and thought about those things, I would never leave the house. It's like I have to start where I'm at. Like I, I have a great life today. I have three beautiful kids. I have a job that I like. I took a sick day today. I laid around. I watched, um, I watched TV. I cooked, you know, because I have a place to live. I own my own house. I bought through a low-income owners program. Well, the bank owns most of it. But I, I've like done these amazing things. But it'd be so easy just to feel sorry for myself and just, you know, and just continue to be miserable. And I just don't want to live like that today. Is there anything you do when you feel like you're about to wallow or you're getting those feelings? Are there any, like, practices you do or something to kind of, like, snap you back into reality? Well, the one thing that I've noticed the past six months is I don't want to spend all my time surfing the same three websites online. Mm. Like, one of the things I do when I start to get depressed is I spend too much time just looking on the Internet or, like... uh, you know, looking at social media and then going to Reddit and then going to all these different sites. And I notice now, like, it's even better if I just watch a TV show, just anything, read a book. I started reading books again. I didn't read books for a long time. So just change the, change, change your routine. Change whatever, yeah. change whatever it is. Like, if you're, de- I mean, to me, depression is like, it's like a wool sweater that's itchy, but it's comfortable and you've had it your whole life. So you just, you just kind of put, have it on sometimes, but then you, but sometimes you don't want to be hot. Like, so you have to figure out and take it off and like deal with life. And so, um, for me, when I notice myself starting to slip into those places where I'm just wallowing, I, I have to try to change up my routine and, you know, exercise, people are like, Oh, go exercise and go out of the sun and all you know, that some when you're depressed, sometimes that's too much to do. But you know, I I don't need to drink a pot of coffee on that day, or I need to try to figure out how to eat food, or like I'll make myself food. I think making myself food makes me happy too. Hmm. Like, there's nothing worse than eating a whole bag of garlic pita chips or whatever, sitting there just feeling like shit when you already feel like sh- you know you already feel like shit. Yeah. It's like heroin. It's like a bag. Yeah. <laughs> you, once, you crack, once you crack that bag open, there's no wake up. It's all gone. Well, I think that's what's hard about it is when I'm feeling down, I go straight to the Ben and Jerry's, right? And and that's just going to make me feel worse. I don't know. That's So what's the harm reduction? What's the middle ground? Well, you, you leave, the secret is you leave one spoonful inside the pint, and that way you didn't actually finish the whole pint. I don't know that that's true. Yeah, though. That, doesn't that make them? Doesn't that make you the dick that just left one to buy the ice cream? Um, that's when I. That's when I lose the fight, right? Like uh, when I win the fight, I do what you do. I I mix it up. I go outside. I I go go do something nice for my wife. Just do something else. Like yeah. do the dishes, do chores, uh, anything really. Yeah. yeah. I, I think ice cream. Ice cream used to be my go-to, but I don't really. There's just. I mean, that ice cream is just like a next level of feeling bad about yourself. 
You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. Like when you, I mean, now they have the lower calorie things of ice yeah, cream. Yeah, if yeah. you can buy like the 500 calorie yep. whole pint, oh, yeah. as opposed to like, you know, when you eat a thousand calories in a sitting, you just, uh, you know what I mean? Just and it's okay sometimes over. though, right? Like, yeah. like, like you took a day off and, and, and took care of yourself today, right? Like sometimes I'll go, oh, I lost a job. I'm going to eat ice cream today. You know yeah. what I mean? It's, it's yeah. sometimes instead of drink. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah, it's, that's har- isn't that harm reduction? That's harm reduction. There it yeah. is. Not going to commit any crimes. Yeah, or you can, you can have your depression snacks <laughs> lined up. I think I've had too many of them lately. Like I don't even know if they're depression snacks at this point because I haven't been feeling depressed. But I'm just like, I, you know, they talk about the sympathy weight. And I have a one-year-old, right? So when my wife was pregnant, after we got married, I was like, I wasn't really thinking much about what I was eating. And now that's carried on for almost a year. And I'm like, I'm not feeling very good. Yeah. You know? Well, plus there's the whole thing of when you abuse your body and you don't expect to live past a certain age and then you live, what am I going to do? Like I have a... <laughs> <laughs> like you're, you're like, I'm not going to need this. Right? I, I totally lived. I mean, I, tr- I spent a lot of money trying to kill myself by the time I was 30. Sure. And now I'm over 40 and, I'm, you know, I'm pushing 50. It's like now, it, and you know, I've had a pretty good run. Like I got rid of, I've had the hep A, B, and C. I got rid of all the heps. And then I... For the most, I mean, my weight has been like the biggest problem, but now I'm actually starting to get like physical aches and pains. Um, like I have a shoulder problem. I have this mm-hmm. thing called frozen shoulder, which isn't even like a cool injury. It's like a bullshit injury where you can't lift your arm all the way up. I got a story about that. My wife had frozen shoulder and it was, it was going to take like six months or something to yes. just work itself out. And then she was at a work party and someone threw a ball and she instinctively reached up and grabbed it and then fell to the floor in pain. She, she unfroze it by like ripping it. And they say that that's oh, actually man. something like if you have a doctor, just quickly like, you know, that's good for it. That sounds very painful. That sounds. She said it was the most painful thing ever. That sounds horrible. Yeah, but then her shoulder was great. So you mentioned going to shows too. I know you just saw Fear recently. I did because we went back and forth about that. Yes. And the awesomeness of that. So that's something that for me is still a part of my life, and you know, part of this podcast is mostly talking to, you know, people that have been involved in music, especially the punk community and, you know, trying to find people that we can relate to the two of us. Right. And for those that don't know, my dog Bo is here. You'll see a photo of him on Facebook at some point. Um, but he's growling in the corner cause he wants me to pet him. Uh, so talk to me a little bit about how it is to go to shows now being, you know, you've been in recovery a long time and I know, for me, I was really nervous about going back to see live music. And in fact, I had to talking about sitting on chairs earlier. I had to sit on the chair at Walden house a couple of times. Cause I went out and deviated from my past and went to clubs and saw, you know, punk shows and, um, you know, just, you know, kind of talk to us a little bit about that experience. Cause I think it's important for people, especially in sobriety to kind of know that it's okay to go have fun. So I didn't get clean to be miserable. I didn't get off drugs to be miserable so the first 18 months that I was off drugs sober, I really struggled with going out places because I was afraid the needle was going to fall on my neck if I went out. But then I found like a core group of people to go with. And so sometimes I'll go by my, sometimes I'll go out by myself, but I like to try to go out with at least one other sober person or at least a person who sort of understands my whole thing. Um, and, you know, I think it's important to say if I only listen to two songs and I leave because I feel anxious, that's that's okay. Like, I, if I stand in the corner and don't interact with anyone and I choose to go home, even if I'm in Berkeley and I live in Daly City and I catch a lift home and it costs me 40 bucks or whatever, if I'm feeling anxious, it's okay because I'm going to enjoy myself if I know I have an exit plan, but I'm not going to enjoy myself if I know that I'm stuck someplace or I'm dependent on another person's ride. I always try to find have, like, my own ride or my own situation where I can leave anytime I want. And That's I, key. And I think I enjoy things a lot better. Or like being with someone where I can be like, you know what, I can't deal with this. I got to bounce. Um, especially as you get older and people bumping into you and touching you and stuff like that. Like I don't necessarily, I'm not into that as much as, you know, it wouldn't bother me as much. But I try to go out once or twice a month. I had quit going out for a little while, obviously, because I have kids. I've taken my kids to um, to a few shows 
with me. It's interesting now because um, I know a lot of the singers or people who work at the band. So I, I don't think I, the first 40 years of my life, I think I had, I don't think I've been on the guest list more than three times. But then like now I'm on, I've been on the guest list a bunch of different times, which makes me feel weird because I'm cool and I'm old. Uh, because I know, because we've lit, you know, it's like, oh, we're still alive. Yay. Uh, you're here in this city my band's playing or whatever, or I run this club. Do you want to come? So it's actually kind of cool, um, you know, to go out and, and then live, there's something about live music. You know, I couldn't listen to music for a long time because it would remind me so much of sitting in a room using, but now I really like, I mean, when I went to fear, it was like such a total feeling of joy for 45 minutes or whatever. And I told people they're not going to play past 11 because leaving's over 70 years old, which was true. But, I mean, they, to hear them play those songs, like, I remember listening to um, Watching Decline and Western Civilization and The Dark on Night Flight on USA and on cable TV and, like, whatever year it was, 1984, whatever year, um, on my parents' little TV. Um, you know, they had gone to sleep. It's, like, 2 o'clock in the morning. And seeing that and having that just changed change my life, like, thinking, you know, I don't have to be like everybody else. I can totally be myself. And that's... And that's kind of, you know, it's kind of come full circle. I don't have to be anybody else. I can, I I actually have reinvented myself in sobriety. I can be whoever I want to be. Yeah. I mean, I think that it's funny you mentioned decline because I saw X play in 1987 and I thought to myself, Xena is the most amazing human being I've ever seen. She came out in like a, uh, a tiara and like a, you know, a tight, like old vintage prom dress. And just they just crushed it. It was like so unbelievable. And it's one of the things I've gone back to like time after time for inspiration is just like I know for a fact when I'm feeling bad. And I spent I spent a fair amount of money on my I bought a Sonos system for my house because I want to listen to music in every room whenever the hell I want. And I may not want to listen to what everybody else wants to listen to. Yeah. You know, and having that as an outlet and, you know, Joshua and I actually play in a band together and it's a bunch of guys that actually have adult lives. You know, we're all, we all have work, we all have families, um, you know, married or married with kids. And it's, it's been a really, really fun experience to play with guys that I actually like and can relate to. And there's no like drive, like there's no, there's not necessarily like a pot of gold at the end of the rainbow. You know what I mean? Like we're we're not looking for that. We're looking for like having fun and being with people that we enjoy playing with, you know, and if it's not perfect, it's okay. You know, it's just such a different experience than when I used to play music, you know, and there was, I felt like this constant pressure, you know? Yeah. And going to shows is the same way. I don't feel like I have to stay. I don't have to even make excuses anymore. Yeah. I got two kids. Yes. You know, I run oh, a business. Yeah. The best part of having adult is my wife and I go see a show. We just bounce when we're, we're like, we get it. We saw the song we wanted to see. We can just go. And also having your playlist. That's whatever, whatever it is that you want to listen to. Totally. Like I have, if I have Eric B. and Rakeem, if I have parliament and then i listen to queen and then i listen to fear and then i listen to hardcore you know various hardcore bands uniform choice whatever it is it's whatever i want to listen to it's whatever music inspires me like i'm so stoked about the queen movie that's coming out i've seen i've watched i've watched the trailer like i fucking cried like a baby the first time i watched that trailer they have two of them and i seen both of them and i was just like I mean, just, I mean, <laughs> even thinking about if they screw that movie up, I will cry real tears. I yeah. will cry real tears. That will be so sad. That will be like the death of my childhood. I don't get the feeling that they have. I mean, the I don't know. We'll see. But I shouldn't even say cried like a baby. I cried like an adult man yes. who is emotionally more stable than I've ever been in my life. <laughs> oh, I just hope they have the song Love of My Life in it. His song oh, that he God. wrote about Mary. Like, who is the love of his life? Like, he... He he realizes at a certain point that he's bisexual and he you know he has this but he has this woman that he's been with and then he's has his gay lover or whatever but he he Mary was always the love of his life he left his estate to her even though he had a male yeah. lover Jim and it's like that was the love of his life Ugh, and oh yeah even thinking about it, I'm like clutching my pearls Jeez, just now, now I'm really excited I'm so excited to see that movie I, t- I I dragged my my uh, my wife a couple of years ago to see Rocket from the Crypt when they came through. And they're probably the band that I have, I have every single thing they've ever released. And I know all the songs pretty much lyrically by heart. And it was fun to be able to go with somebody that sh- there's no judgment. I'm, I'm screaming every song out with the other guys in the front of the, the show. And it's so fun to be able to do that now. It's just such a different experience. That's such an interesting thing to touch on because, so I never really liked live music. 
I like drinking with my friends, and that's right. why I went to shows. But uh, only this past year have I started going and and going and dancing and singing along, and, yes. and way more free than I ever was when I was drinking. I never, I was too self conscious to do any of that when I was drinking. And then there's certain songs that remind you of a particular era. Like if I hear "Touch Me, I'm Sick," it reminds me of like getting. Uh, pictures at the bar. Like when I first really kicked off into my alcoholism, but I was using opioids at the same time. Cause that, I mean, that was exactly touch me. I'm sick. Like that's exactly how I was. Or I think when I first got sober, I was living in the, the treatment facility and Fang played a sober event. And, you know, Sammy didn't end up staying sober that he's sober now, but, and Josh Levine was playing and, and to see, this band, because I remember shooting, literally shooting, shooting dope with my friend in this room in Ohio, listening to Fang, and then going to this. And at the time, I was wearing like FUBU sweatsuits with chains. Like I didn't know who the fuck I was. I just knew those are the people that were clean, so I was going to dress like them. And to go and like hear this band and say, you know what, I can be whoever the, whoever I am. I don't have to be any fit in any kind of particular box or whatever. Because I didn't see any punk rockers that were that were sober none until you know it was a little while into it like uh and then I was just like you know I can just be free I can just be myself so that was really that was really really rad um yeah I've seen a few shows where I just got totally got chills and I it was like this is why this is why I did this This is why I stopped shooting heroin Mm -hmm. yeah Mm -hmm. It's, it's just an amazing experience now I'm not gonna like it doesn't matter how much I go see live music you know, I, I'm at this point, like, I'm, if I get a chance to do it and there's a night that I can go do it, I'll do it, you know, and if it works out with the schedule, awesome. If I'm tired and I feel like going home, no problem. And I've actually, so the last time I was at, at funny thing about this is that there's been times where I've been exhausted. I'm like, screw it. I'm just going to go because there's a band I really want to see. And nine times out of 10, I like the opening band more and I'd never heard of them. Hmm. You know, it's like, wow, who are these guys? Who are these ladies? You know, they're like crushing it. Yeah. And it's it's a really it's just such a different thing. And I never would have even showed up for the opening band when I was drinking. I would barely make it in for the headliner if I was lucky. You know? I mean, outside of Gilman, the no drinking zone, we didn't we didn't care about that. Yeah. We cared about that, you know. But um, you know, I, I think we're so we're we've been running for a while now. I do want to touch on a couple of things before we wrap up. Um I know you do a lot of advocacy work as well and you know, I think it's important, especially in San Francisco, as we're we're transition, transitioning to a new mayor and um, probably some new policies. Um, and we see that um, the homelessness problem is not going anywhere. In fact, it's been getting worse over the last few years. Um, I'd like to just have you touch a little bit on the work that you're doing currently, because I think it's really important. And a lot of times you work with um, people that are like extraordinarily marginalized, not even like slightly marginalized, but like the most marginalized people, um, in, in San Francisco. I mean, the, the people that you've been working with, um, in your career over the the last few years, especially since you transitioned your role, you know, it's, it's a, it's a tough, uh, population to work with, not necessarily because the, the people are, but because of how difficult it is to, to like really connect with services and, you know, repair lives, uh, given what's going on in the climate and the money in this city right now. So I don't actually do, so I work, I work in the city and I work helping people who have had histories of drug use or mental health issues, get jobs within the civil service system. And that is actually an area where there is a lot of positive things going on. Peer counseling is really sort of the, one of the saving graces of our current city system in a lot of ways. Um, not to say that, I mean, there's there's no way to control the housing crisis that we have here. There's, I mean, no one could have expected that. When I came to San Francisco in 1992, you could get a studio apartment for $450. I lived in a studio apartment for $450. At the time, the, if you got what we called welfare back then, it was $375. So two people on welfare could chip in and get mm-hmm. an apartment and two pe- and a person on social security making 700 something dollars a month could get an apartment in the city. 
So now you can't get an apartment. I mean, if I were to become homeless today, I wouldn't even be able to get an apartment. And then all of the SRO housing, for the most part, has either been bought up and changed into programs, or now tech housing is moving into those places. I mean, there's two of the different hotels that we had worked with. They said, we don't want your formerly homeless people here anymore. We're going to put, in one hotel in particular, they put two bunk beds, charged $900 a bed, and changed those rooms over and got the people out of there. So there's... There's exacerbating factors beyond my pay grade that I can't necessarily deal with, but I try to do, um, I do work with peer counseling and training people who've had that experience to work with other people like that. And so I I do a lot of writing for programs, um, you know, trying to write programs that bring money into the county. But on a personal level, the naloxone work I do is specifically around people who do not access syringe exchanges do not access services so there's a a large pool of people in the united states they may have access to the internet but other than that they don't have access to a whole lot so if you have a certain amount of money in the united states you can potentially buy your drugs online buy testing kits buy syringes you can have things delivered to your house but if you don't fall into that category you don't have access to clean syringes. You don't have access to naloxone. There's different things you don't have access to. And that's sort of the communities that I work in. And a lot of the work that I've done in the past couple of years has really been around trying to get other people um, the information that they need to try to work in those communities. And, it, you know, if you go in any kind of, I don't know how far your podcast is going to go, but if you take a 10-pack of syringes and you put them down where the homeless people congregate in any city, they're going to get to the right place. Yep. Like, you don't have to do harm reduction on a large scale. If you put out some clean water, if you put out some syringes, if you if you carry naloxone, um, I had a friend, he was saying, oh, I don't necessarily want to carry that. I said, I if you live in, in this city, you should carry it. And he ended up using it within a week on someone just randomly walking down the street, ended up giving them Narcan and saving their life. So, so a lot of the work I do is around can, you know, trying to get access into places and people um, and educate people um, who don't necessarily have other forms or other kinds of access. And the, the second piece I want to say around that is the internet has so much information on it. It's almost useless to people who use drugs to a certain extent because if you are trying to find like certain information, you just don't get to the places where you necessarily need to be. Uh, if you try to find treatment, a lot of times the treatment places that you're going to get are are places that are basically preying on you because of your insurance. Those are going to be the first searches you see on the internet are the people who are trying to send you to $90,000 rehab. Mm-hmm. And some of the other options are going to be way buried way farther down. So there's almost so much information out there. It's almost too much information. So a lot of what I do is try to get people to the right place to get the information that they need. So in that vein, because we're we're at the hour mark now, um, give us your, your – we'll post this as well, but give us your blog because you have a blog that you maintain pretty well and people ask a lot of questions. You're on Reddit. Um, you have other areas that you can – or other ways to get a hold of you. Um, and I think it's important to share that because the information that you share is not cut with a bunch of bullshit. It's straight and it's forward. And if you can help someone individually, you do. And you've sent plenty of women to me who couldn't afford your book. And I bought it for them and sent it out to rehab centers for them to read and pass along to their to their fellow uh, you know, participants in the program. So, so I, the best way to get a hold of me is either TracyH415 at Gmail or... Um, I'm Tracy H four one five on Tracy with an E Tracy T R A C E Y H four one five on Instagram on Twitter on Reddit and then I also have a blog which is um, uh, Tracy H four one five dot blogspot dot com so. And I pretty much answer all, and I have a YouTube channel too, but I pretty much answer every message. If I didn't answer your message, message me again because I might have missed it because I might have had 500 other messages. I mean, literally, I've had 500 messages some days when I do media appearances. But I try to answer everybody's questions. But, I mean, just and just for people's information, if you're trying to find a rehab online, there's the SAMHSA website, which will show you all the options in your actual area, not just the ones that are super expensive. So there's a, something called the SAMHSA Treatment Locator uh, that you can find online. And that's a government site that shows all the different treatment options. Um, because a lot of times the first searches you're going to find if you're trying to find rehab is, is, like I said, people, the really expensive ones are going to, they pay money to make sure they're the ones that pop up first. Totally true. 
Anything else you want to throw out there that you're working on? Um, get Narcan. That's the big one. I'm, okay. So, I mean, for me, I'm going... So, I actually don't get paid for this work. I have a, I have a job, and I, I put in a lot of money myself, and then I do fundraisers periodically. But, a lot, I mean, the thing that I, I think is important to know is that uh, I'm not paid by anyone to do this kind of work. It's stuff that I do because I really believe in it. And if you believe in it, too, get in touch with me because I can always use new recruits. And, you know, I'm working, I'm always writing and doing advocacy. I'll be going to the East Coast sometime in the fall to do a couple trips, um, speaking to some federal judges, some probation officers. Um, that's the other piece of what I do. You know, periodically I go on trips and, and speak to large groups or even small groups uh, about, you know, addiction and, and naloxone and whatever other topics they'll invite me to speak about. Awesome. Anything else from you? Oh, well, I know that when we were getting together and kind of forming this show, uh, Tracy was like the first person you wanted to get on. and For sure. And I can see why this has been amazing. Thank you so much for coming on today. Thanks. Yeah, I feel, I'm feeling good. And, and I think one thing that I'd like to just close with is Tracy's a really good example of people that, you know, you hear a lot about pull yourself up by your bootstraps, which, you know, in my honest opinion is kind of a bullshit kind of excuse um, or like directive that people can't necessarily take. Tracy was offered help and support and was smart enough to take that help and support, but also move herself into a position to be more educated and be able to help others through both that, like accepting of the support and then taking it and moving it to another level by passing it along. So thanks. Thanks a lot. And thanks for listening, everybody.